Excellent. Right, if I can bring you back, it'd be fantastic. So I think, great opportunity. This is a bit, I bet, just to get to know Bishop Karen a bit more. I thought we'd have a quick interview and ask some usual deep and meaningful questions as I ask when we have people they come out there. So let's start off. So Bishop Karen, um, what's your favourite colour? Um, blue. Blue. Right, and uh, do you follow sport at all? No. No. So I, I won't ask you what your favourite team is. No. No. I do um, long distance walking. Excellent. So what's so the... I've just um, walked the North Norfolk Coast Path. 47 miles in wow. five days. Fantastic. Fun. Lovely. That's Excellent. Yep. And uh, favourite film? This is going to be, yeah, um, The Sound of Music. Sound of Music. Who has that as their favourite film as well? <laughs> There's quite a few in the first search. Yeah. It's funny, it's girls' hands go up. I've never seen a boy put their hand up. Well, there was one at the end, but anyway. It's interesting. Fantastic. And the, the real deep and meaningful question, the question we all want to ask is, uh, what's it like being a bishop? It's really good. I'm, I'm the um, bishop in, in, um, in Salisbury Diocese, but I oversee the church in Dorset. So every day can be different and every Sunday can be different. So there's Paul and North Bournemouth, but also going right the way down to Lyme Regis and the villages and hamlets in between. So um, everything from trying a traditional small church right the way through to something like this. So it's, a, it's, it's great, great fun, but also really encouraging to see what God's doing in all different places. Good, lovely. Okay, let me pray for you as we... So you come to speak to us. Lord, we just thank you for Bishop Karen, and we thank you for everything that you're doing in her life, Lord, and we just pray for her this morning. Pray for the word that you're going to bring through her, and thank you for the work that she's done so far in preparing for this. But Lord, we want to hear you, and we just pray for Bishop Karen now. And us as a congregation, that again, you'd open our ears so we hear you, and our hearts so that we uh, take it in and do something different from tomorrow onwards. If we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, it's good to be here this morning. Thank you for your welcome. I wonder what your favourite Bible passage is. I'm sure we all have one. A favourite psalm or perhaps a verse given to you at a particular time. Something to comfort us when all is not going well. Something just to encourage us. Or maybe it's a larger passage of Scripture. In understanding a bit about me, I thought I would begin today by sharing to you my favorite passage. It's Jesus' action just before the Last Supper. We read it in John's Gospel, these words. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from table, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. It's a profound moment. No one had washed a disciples' feet as they arrived with the dust of the streets on them. The traditional servant hadn't been at the door when they had arrived. And the custom that the host took the place of the servant appears not to have happened either. So I can imagine that embarrassed silence as the disciples all looked at one another, not really knowing what to do and feeling unprepared for the meal that was about to happen. And into that silence and embarrassment stepped Jesus, the man with the basin ministry. Yet here was their leader, 
the one who his followers had just begun to discern that he might have a godly quality about him and who might just be who he seemed to say he was, the Son of God, the Messiah. Here was the one that Israel had yearned for and prayed to come and bring them salvation. Here was this man getting up, doing the task of a servant. No wonder some of them didn't want him to wash their feet. The towel and the basin were fundamental symbols of what Jesus was all about. Jesus had been using the basin for three years. Not like Pilate to absolve himself of responsibility. Not like the Pharisee to exclude others. But his basin was one of assertive love which took responsibility for other people and included them in his upside-down kingdom. In retrospect, as we look back, we can clearly see the shape of his basin ministry. Jesus spoke forcefully against the rich who dominated the poor. He healed and he shelled grain on the Sabbath. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. He allowed a prostitute to touch and anoint him. He traveled with women in public. He told parables that stung the religious leaders. He talked freely with Samaritans and sinners and Gentiles. He healed the sick. He blessed the helpless. He touched the lepers and he talked freely with those that no one would talk about. He purged the sacred temple and he stirred up large crowds. He didn't make a fuss for the sake of making a fuss, but he actively and aggressively used the basin and towel to serve the poor and helpless, regardless of the conventional social customs. I'm not sure why that passage has become so important to me, but its meaning to me was brought home further by an incident that happened almost 30 years ago. I was working in a challenging poor parish in the northeast of England, and we ran a Sunday afternoon club to which local children would come. One, of the, one afternoon, one of the girls was clearly very distressed and quiet. She didn't seem to want to join in with any of the activities, and when she did, she could be very, very difficult. We all know children like that. But then at one point, she sat herself in the middle of the dusty hall floor and wouldn't move, disrupting anything we planned to do. And no amount of cajoling or rebuking could move her, and there she sat. And we were all at a loss to know what to do. And then I realized that the only thing I could do was to sit down on the dusty floor beside her. She cried. And I cried. And very gently, we talked about her problems and her mood changed. It was one of those moments that I shall never forget because as I sat down on the floor, I realized more than ever before that that is what Jesus does. He doesn't rebuke us or cajole us, but he comes alongside us and meets us as we are in all our mess and our muddle and our difficulties and he gently tends our wounds and he cleans us up. In that simple act of foot washing, we're reminded that the Son of God came in the simple, ordinary things of life, in the vulnerability of a young woman, in the dirt of a stable, at a time of political turmoil to turn everything upside down. 
He came not to lord it over us, but to serve, not to rule with power or might, but with gentleness and humility, not with chariots, palaces and wealth, but in poverty with a donkey and a borrowed tomb. And we are invited to enter the basin ministry with Jesus, not just a ceremonial rite, but a lifetime of service. And in John's gospel, Jesus goes on to amplify that, to bring application to his action in saying, so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus told his followers clearly and matter-of-factly, next time this happens, wash one another's feet. And I believe he meant it quite literally. I believe his intention was that next time when they met, and we read that in Acts 2, these disciples gathered together and they would have done exactly what they had seen Jesus doing. Yet Jesus' words and deed of washing feet carries more than that simple message, I believe, for the disciples. I believe his words had a broader meaning. He was taking another opportunity to vividly reinforce a lesson that he had tried many times before to get through to them, and it was this. In the words of Mark 9, verse 35, if anyone wants to be last, first, they must be very last and the servant of all. If Jesus, our Lord and teacher, washed his disciples' feet, we also should serve each other. There should be no task, no role, no effort that we will not do for one another. And I'm still learning this, but with the Christian walk does mean things, doing the things that you would not instinctively choose to do for yourself. It also means going places that you never dreamt of going to. This is not just about a willingness, this is about an action. He said, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Whether we're willing or not, if we're not humbly serving our brothers and sisters, then we're not following Christ. There is, though, one fact that has always struck me about that passage in John's Gospel, and it's this. We're left with a question. Who washed Jesus' feet that evening? We read that when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. From all appearances, Jesus returned to the table with unwashed feet. Do you remember when Jesus spoke of feeding the hungry and clothing the poor and visiting those who were sick and in prison? Remember that he said, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So I've concluded that Jesus went back to the table with dirty feet because in some mystical but real way, when we, his followers, do not serve each other, Jesus himself pays the price of their pride. When you and I do not serve each other because we're unwilling to forgive, because we won't swallow our pride, because the task is somehow beneath us, because it's easier to let someone else do it, Whatever the reason, in some mystical way, Jesus' feet go unwashed. Notice that Jesus didn't say, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, it is as if you did it for me. 
He said, whatever you did for one of the brothers of mine, you did for me. When we wash the feet of another, when we humbly serve our brother and sister, when we give and expect nothing in return, when we cook a meal or sweep a path, when we offer someone a lift or we empty a bedpan or we pay someone a compliment, when we surrender the spotlight, deflect the credit, shoulder the burden, we are blessing not only that person, but we are blessing the very heart of Jesus So why do I begin by telling you all of this? Well, I believe this is what I think Philippians 2, 1 to 11 is all about. Jesus' actions before his death, resurrection, and ascension show us clearly the humility we are called to imitate. Chapter 2 in Philippians follows on clearly from chapter 1. The use of the word then looks back at what Paul has already said and builds upon it. Here Paul sets out his blueprint for a believing community that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul begins by repeating some of the key words from chapter 1. He's not raising any doubt or question about the quality of or the genuineness of the Christian community in Philippi, but affirming them and just building them up. He highlights the importance of fellowship, of love, of partnership, of affection, of unity, and mindset or attitude, that these are to be the qualities of any Christian community. Now, I know in my experience of many, many churches that are not always like that. In fact, a church by its very nature is made up of all sorts of people and will probably struggle with all of those things. But as always in the Bible, we have a mirror held up to us to help us aspire to live lives differently. It's a way of repeating what Christ himself taught, as well as individual lives of disciples. They are standards for Christian fellowship. Paul puts them simply, but they are in fact a lifetime's work. What does it mean for a church to be of one mind? What does it mean for those to come together to have compassion and sympathy? And who for? Such questions must constantly form the basis of our common prayer and discernment. They take us back to the Beatitudes spoken by Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. Paul speaks of his own response to the Philippian church if they led a godly and good life. It will make, he says, his joy complete. I must admit, as a bishop, it will very much make my joy complete if all churches were loving and united. I went to visit part of Dorset the other day, I won't say where, which in its history had been vastly overpopulated with churches. There were Anglican churches and congregational churches and free churches and Methodist churches and various branches of other churches. Why so many? Well, over the years, they had basically fallen out with each other. And each person had left to form their own church. It may look like a lot of churches, although there are now very few left, But it was a clear example of Christians not loving one another, not being of one mind or united. As Jesus also reminded us, the unity of the church is a witness to God, 
and he powerfully, his powerful prayer that we should all be one. Congregations falling out is an example of bad witness, not good. The church of Philippi was not immune from this, hence Paul writing to them. There was discord there, perhaps polarization around those who lead, perhaps dissension around the preaching, or maybe that even due to Paul's relationship with the church there himself. Whatever the unity would bring Paul joy. And so he set out in this passage the need for concord in broader terms. Paul presents the forms of conduct and relationships to be avoided, and he does so by using three negatives. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit. Literally meaning empty glory. And don't look after your own interests. In other words, stop acting selfishly. Paul regarded as inappropriate for the body of Christ through his writings these things. The selfish eye, the pompous mind, the ear hungry for compliments, the mouth that didn't speak anything good, the heart that had little room for others, and the hand that only served itself. That's a great reminder as we consider our own lifestyle, particularly today in this 21st century, So in humility, we are to regard others as better than ourselves, look to the interests of others, have the same mind of Christ. And so we are led back to that event in the upper room, the towel and basin ministry of humility. And instead of a retelling of a story, as I have done, in chapter 2 of Philippians, we have what is considered a hymn. Many biblical scholars have looked at the end of this passage and commented on its form. A hymn of descent and ascent, of God coming down to earth and then taking a position up in heaven, of being among us and us coming to him. In another way, others see it not in two parts but in three, describing the pre-existence of Christ with God and then Christ's earthly ministry and then his glorification. There's not agreement as to whether St. Paul composed the hymn or whether he quoted a hymn already available to him. The majority view is that Paul here quoted a hymn used by the early church. The hymn is so rich in statement and inference that we can easily take it on its own and forget what Paul sought to say to the Philippians by means of quoting it. In using it, he puts Christ's ministry into context and sets out our own response to God with the last two verses being very much a promise. The Philippian audience that was suffering for the sake of the gospel knew only too well that all knees had not yet bent in obedience, nor had all lips confessed that Jesus was Lord. But in context, the prime use is to call all of us to conform to Christ and adopt the same self-giving attitude in our relationship to one another. It's about attitudes more than actions. It's about walking the talk, about living out the Christian life, adjoining the dots of what we read in the gospel. Unfortunately, humility is often misrepresented in our culture, leaving us with the idea that meekness equals weakness. 
Yet in this context, humility differs radically from self-deprecation or false modesty. We're not invited to think ill of ourselves or to engage in some self-degrading practice. The model is Christ, whose self-emptying was in fact fulfilling his true vocation. And we've turned so many of these later verses into songs and hymns, such as the well-known one, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. It's easy, then, to take it for granted and to forget the challenge. It's so challenging, I think, for us today, when life is set before us so individually, when there are choices to make which affect our children and our family, that work promotion, that school place, that larger house, that salary, that window of holiday we are owed, that small frame of time we have to spend every weekend, what we do with our retirement, that precious day off, that wonderful bonus. At each decision, that well-known quotation, what would Jesus do, comes to mind. But also set out here are the facts that other people matter too. And who are they? Yes, our family. But what about the neighbours who can't afford a holiday? What about the colleague who is struggling at home? The person in church who has most meals on their own? What about the poor on our streets? The project overseas that needs assistance? our own response to the news headlines. This passage challenges us because we cannot ignore what Jesus did for us in coming on earth, dying, rising, and in continuing to serve us today in all sorts of ways. At a time when authority gets such a bad press, we need to counter, be countercultural in demonstrating what we do and how we live our lives, humbling before a higher authority. I want to finish by just saying something about your new vicar. We're currently, as you know, in the process of going to advert to see whom God might be calling you here. And I know some of you have worked hard just to set out who you are as a church and what you are looking for. The profile looks great, so thank you for it. But it's easy, though, to, at a time like this, for a church to just have that mental tick list and to see how various applicants measure up. You know, the kind of thing that they can preach amazing sermons. Yes, tick. That they're a great evangelist and will grow the church doubly in the first year. Yes, tick. That they will bring hundreds of children and young families here. Yes, tick. That they will perform miracles. Yes, tick. It's easy for us to think about we want, what we want, what we need, what we require, what we aspire to, and we pray that, don't we? However, this passage from Philippians turns some of that on its head. I challenge you, therefore, today to change that prayer, to ask God for the person God wants. He may not be anything like you want. So I want us to end this morning with a short time of silence as we just bring our own lives before God, having been challenged by this call to humility, having been challenged to love and to look towards the needs of others, this call to service on God's terms and not our own.
the call to embrace Christ by living a life of service pleasing to him. Let's just be quiet and respond in our own minds and hearts.